There was a point in Noah Trimble's life when no one would have imagined he'd want to become a teacher. I was viciously bullied. I was a small kid. I was a late bloomer, and I also have a summer birthday, so you know how that goes. Either you're old or you're young, and I was young. And I remember just being classically bullied. Trash cans, lockers, you know, that kind of stuff. I think a lot of other kids were in a similar situation. Another kid who had been bullied brought a blade to school, and I got cut. <laughs> and um, it was really confusing to me because I thought this person and I were friends, but I think they were going through a lot of things, and then that just came out at me. You know, I got cut, and I just left the class. You know, I come up the stairs from gym bleeding, and my gym teacher had to call an ambulance. The teacher of the class that I was in when, you know, I got cut, she was like, why didn't you tell me? And I remember not knowing why I didn't say anything. Noah is in his final year as a middle childhood education major at Ohio State and a recipient of the Weiler Family Teacher Preparation Scholarship. But a year after graduating from high school, he was living out of his car. What allowed him and other recipients in his cohort to overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles to get where they are now? Today, we tell the stories of two Weiler scholars, Noah and Asha. Despite everything that hit them, they didn't give up. Their keys to overcoming are rooted in relationships and reflect a life goal that they both found along the way, to become educators. This is the Ohio State University Inspire podcast. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grosso is our audio engineer. Inspire is a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology. After being slashed on his arm and stomach with a razor, Noah Trimble didn't want to go back to his middle school. His parents had split up when he was younger, so he moved to Troy, Ohio, to live with his father. For a black kid moving to a rural school, the change was drastic. A little culture shock, you know, going to the country from the inner city and then... And what was that like? It Was it all, all white school? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. There were two other kids of color there when I started. I went to the office like day two because they were playing this like two for flinching game and I didn't, I was just so used to getting beat up and bullied. And so first kid flinched at me and then punched me and I punched him back and Uh go to the principal's office. And, but that kid and I ended up being friends. We're still friends today. It wasn't an easy shift, but once dad set some pretty strong limitations on what I could do and some pretty high expectations for me. And I hadn't really had that before. Homework gets done. You're in sports all year. I played every sport. Considering what he'd been through, those were good years for Noah. But with divorce, you know, kids switch around. But my mom was struggling with, you know, alcoholism and things like that. She's very functional. My mom is, you know, 10 years sober now. She's Mm -hmm. one of my biggest heroes. I love Mm -hmm. her very much. But Mm -hmm. it was hard at that time. There was a rough spot. Yeah. And so... uh, You ended up coming back to Columbus. Yeah. I have two other sisters. I have an older sister and a younger sister. And it's kind of this unspoken agreement that there would always be a kid at my mother's. It was Noah's turn. His sisters went to live with their dad. Noah moved back to Columbus to be with his mom. What played out was the kind of back-and-forth living arrangement that can whiplash kids, especially when the family faces addiction. Noah stayed in Columbus for a year going to a Catholic high school. Then he went back to Troy. Then 
he came back to Columbus to finish at a public high school. Every year of high school, I was back and forth. You're getting sort of tossed. I guess these are all different cultures, right? Yeah. The Troy school was nothing like the Catholic school, which is nope. nothing like Brookhaven, right? It's Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. I got to recreate myself a lot. And some of that was positive, you know, and some of it was not. But yeah, I didn't really have a salient identity that I needed to hold on to, which was a positive, but also didn't really give me a lot to fall back on for like my personal life. Part of the reason for all the back and forth was that his mom was struggling. The very capable woman who had simultaneously worked multiple jobs, raising three kids and putting herself through college, was battling alcohol addiction. When I moved there my senior year, the writing was already on the wall. I'm not going to do this again. We didn't leave on good terms my sophomore year, so I was like, well, let me just make sure I'm prepared. Noah bought a beater car. So when things don't go well, I have somewhere to go. So yeah, I, I packed up my stuff in my little 96 Chevy Cavalier and... That's where I lived <laughs> for my senior year of high school into my freshman year of college. He went to high school, but most days checked himself out so that he could work. And at night, he did his homework and slept in the car, even in winter, moving from parking lot to parking lot to avoid police. So I was just like furious all the time. Like I was just so mad. I remember my, my lowest day. I love this day of my life. But at you the love time, it? <laughs> I love this day. It was so bad. But it was like, you know how Oprah talks about her aha moments or whatever? Oh, yeah. Yeah, aha moment. I'm like out of money. My car's parked in Carriage Place, like over at Carriage Place Park. And it's cold. It's like February or something. And I'm running my car to have the heat on so that I can sleep. Well, the police show up and they say, hey, you're not allowed to to sleep here, so I used the little bit of gas I have left in my car to go over to this car wash right across the street. And I park, and I get the heat going, and then I run out of gas. So I have a gas can, I'm like, all right, like, let me go scrounge up some change. So I'm over near the Walmart, like, looking for change, trying to get enough for a couple bucks to, like, put in my gas tank so I can heat up my car for the night. There's almost always a bunch of change over by, like, the movie theater. Then the sky just opens up. It starts to rain, hard. I am having a fit. I'm so mad and I'm like throwing rocks at the side of the building and I'm screaming at, you know, God in the clouds and anybody that would hear it. I'm just so mad at my mom. I'm just furious. I'm sitting on the ground, it's pouring rain and I'm like, your mom's not here, dude. She hasn't been here for a long time. I'm like, you're mad at somebody who's probably asleep right now, who's not thinking about you. Like, you're just, all that you're doing right now is on you. And it, like, clicked for me. Like, I was like, oh. So wait a minute. You decided you were just hurting yourself by being angry. Yeah. I was just making my time right now way worse because of somebody who wasn't, I wasn't engaging with at all and hadn't been for over a year. Well, it was a pretty grown-up thing to do because, honestly, you're standing in the rain. You have no money. You need to start your car so you can have heat so you're not freezing. I mean, those are all things that you, an 18-year-old would expect to be sort of given to them, but you were having to provide them for yourself. But you you turned it around. I think the big point for me then was that, like, something can be justified but not useful. Sure. My anger was absolutely justified, but it was stalling so much of my life. I wasn't providing a lot of things for myself because I expected... I was still mad that the people who should have hadn't. And at that point, 
it felt like, yeah, things really clicked. Like I'm smart and I'm capable, but I'm not doing anything. And then once it clicked that I just need to do things, then my life really took off. Did you catch what he said? I am smart and I am capable. As it turns out, Noah was not quite as alone in those years as it may seem. The Catholic high school teachers didn't have preset notions about his race, he said, and held him to high academic standards. He discovered that he, quote, wasn't dumb, he says. And there was Mr. Metz, his chemistry teacher in Troy. And he was just really kind and just understood that things might be a little harder for me. What was his secret? What did he do that made you sort of come alive inside and start to believe in yourself? I was very quiet, which is not my typical self, but in school settings, I was just silent and especially around authority. So they ask a question, the shortest answer I can give. Noah had this thing. In the city schools, the expectation was if you're black, you shouldn't be academically gifted. That's not a cool thing to do. And you very much get criticized for trying hard. In the white community, he couldn't show up as smart or ask questions, particularly around certain subjects, because people refused to see him as intelligent. Or if you contradict something somebody else says, they're going to strongly oppose you because you're the stupid black kid. So it's hard to want to speak up in either environment. Mr. Metz didn't go for Noah's short answers. He really kept prodding. Yeah, showed me that he was interested and he wasn't going to give up until he got to know me, which was very cool. And from a teacher, that was pretty unique for me, especially in like high school. I felt like it's easier to get lost in the bustle and everybody's doing their own thing. But yeah, he like forcibly got to know me. He kept pushing. Yeah, he just kept pressing in and got excited about the things that I would say and would reference them. And also... He did this cool thing. So if I told him about something, like I was in martial arts for a long time and I really liked, liked to draw, like he would bring that up to the rest of the class at times. Like he would kind of became like a gateway for other people to get to know me. And that was pretty cool. Mr. Metz got that Noah needed more than help with chemistry. Noah started showing up at the teacher's classroom during his study hall and his lunch. He began to feel capable and it stuck. Even two years later, when he was scraping together tuition for Columbus State Community College, or gas money, to get to class. And when he was sitting in the puddle of rain, outside the closed movie theater, he remembered. He was smart. And he was capable. There's moral beauty. A kid desperately needs a pathway to something better. And someone, a teacher, gently, reassuringly provides it. And in the process, Noah makes a huge step toward overcoming. Researchers in the last few years have emphasized resilience theory, which considers why some youth grow up to be healthy adults in spite of exposure to extreme adversity. Studies indicate that you can build protective factors, particularly among children, to offset risks that hinder personal development. Indeed, pandemic studies showed that even for adults, getting more sleep, spending more time outdoors, and praying more helped people cope with adversity. But notably, having strong family support, a circle of deep friendships, close ties to a teacher or a partner or a faith community, those social supports underscore the fundamental interdependence of people and its impact on overcoming. Charles Metz, like so many teachers have been and continue to be, stepped into Noah Tremble's void, anchoring him as his mentor. But then 
he did even more. I've been shifting my thinking away from talking about mentors. Don Pope Davis is Dean of Ohio State's College of Education and Human Ecology and a psychologist. I think the word we should be using more is stewardship. Stewardship. Yes. Stewardship means, in my view, that I have an interest, a personal interest in your success. It's not just giving you advice from time to time, but it's talking about the other variables in your life that allows for a much inclusive conversation. Because once you have those, you begin to see that if you want to pursue a degree or an education or a trade in a particular area, there are other pieces that have to come into play. And so stewardship requires a really deep dive into the experience and life of the person that you've decided you want to help and assist. And that's what we need to do more of and move away from this traditional model of mentoring, which in some ways is kind of a 40,000 feet level of the encounter. I think I'm sitting here because there were people along the way that helped me and saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. Just going back to that idea of resilience theory, it doesn't factor in how certain people face obstacles and trauma over and over again, which wears them down and can hold them back. Is resilience uh, theory something that we can use to help everybody? And what are its limits? You know, there's this idiom that we learn more when we're unsuccessful than when we are successful. The piece that I think is important is dependent in part on how I think of myself in that moment. What is happening in my life that allows me to do that? And if my concerns are about my livelihood, about my rent, about feeling secure, about transportation, all of those things become primary considerations before I can move in the direction of what clinicians sometimes call self-actualizing, thinking about my future and achieving. Maslow has this hierarchy of needs theory that talks about some of these things that I think factor into the notion of resilience and transformation. And so if you don't feel secure in your environment, if you don't know where the next meal is coming from, and you're talking about pursuing an education or a job, it makes it more difficult to do that. So there are certain fundamental things that have to happen along the way. And one of the variables is who are the people that are supporting me along that way? Having someone or a group of people that can say, I'm going to help you, I'm going to be here with you along the way. And so to that extent, I'm going to provide the environment for you to be successful. Community is huge, isn't right. it? It really is. Right. And, and actually, in that list that I was reading, I think more than half of them had to do with the people around you. Yeah, I, I worry about people who say I made it on my own. Yeah. I don't want to necessarily call them delusional, but I know of no one who has made it on their own. The trick or the opportunity is to make sure you choose the right community because there are different communities that have different objectives and you have to decide which one of those you want to be a part of because that will have a tremendous effect on what happens in your future. More about how Noah chose his community and turned things around in a bit. First, meet Asha Getty, a teaching and learning student who is in the same Weiler Scholarship cohort as Noah. 
I come from Somalia, and it is a war-torn country. It has been since the 90s, and right at the time the Civil War started was around the time that I was born. So my family were going from city to city, trying to run away from war, and then it became to a point where you can't run away from it. It's literally everywhere. I don't have vivid memories of it, but I do have like little flashes that I do remember. So. Looking back at it now as an adult, it was a war-torn country, like literally living right in the middle of war. You told me before that it didn't seem abnormal to you because it's all you knew. No, it didn't because hearing gunshots or helicopters with rounds shooting down, it just seemed regular, like we're crossing the street from one house to another and it's just military trucks coming down the road or airplanes and it didn't seem unnormal until you come to a different place. I I left around three years old. We left Somalia and we went into a refugee camp. The camps, you're held there until they find a placement for you in another country. Refugee camps were dark, dirty, a lot of animals. You would hear stories of people disappearing in the middle of the night, either get eaten by animals or getting kidnapped. There's no security watching us or anything like that, so it's scary. You're in a small little tent. You're in there with three, four, five different families. Asha vividly remembers double-decker buses, like ones in London, coming to pick up people approved for temporary refugee placement. One day, it was her family's turn. And then we got processed out of the camps into an apartment in Kenya. Two years later, Asha and her family were in the United States, first in New York, then quickly moved to Atlanta. Asha couldn't believe her eyes. It's like sirens and cars moving ridiculously and these big, huge skyscrapers. I'm like, humans made this? Like, what is this? A volunteer named Patricia from a church-run group that aided refugees showed her mom how to take the bus, signed her up for English classes, helped her to get a driver's license. Her parents, both teachers in Somalia, got jobs. Asha was enrolled in kindergarten. It was scary. I wasn't fluent in English. I knew my name. I knew my dad's name. I could give you my address. I could give you the bus number that I took. But other than that, I can't have a full conversation with you. But she went to an English as a second language class and watched a lot of American TV. I remember I used to I used to say hallelujah all the time. I didn't even know what it was. I used to be like, hallelujah, hallelujah. You must have been watching religious TV. <laughs> I, was like, I had no idea. And my, my dad was like, um, you know, they say hallelujah. It's like when they're in church, it's like, praise God. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> hallelujah. <laughs> Life was good until 9-11. Asha was in sixth grade when teachers brought a television into the class so students could watch the news. Then... Everyone was sent home. My dad came home and he was like, he got harassed while he was at work. And after September 11th on, it got worse for us in our community. It got worse for my parents at their jobs. Well, it was just like Islamophobia type of stuff, just saying, oh, you guys were the ones that did this. And I guess just associating the event of 9-11 with the whole religion. Her mom lost her job. Asha's family decided to move to Columbus, which has a larger Somali population. And the community was supportive, 
Asha lived like most American teenagers. She made good grades, but still, from time to time at school, she felt like an outsider. Once, an art teacher had her suspended. He thought I said a cuss word in my language. Asha was suspended for 10 days for saying, I don't want to, in Somali. It was the first time she had been disciplined at school. She stopped speaking the language, even at home. A few teachers made her feel less than competent. A social studies teacher shut her down when she said a narrative in their book didn't match her life experience. One English teacher riddled her assignments with editing marks. But I've also had great experiences with teachers. One of them was Kim Dykstra, an English language arts teacher at Brookhaven High School who earned her master's degree at Ohio State. She now teaches at downtown high school and Columbus City Schools. She's the first one who introduced me to Maya Angelou. She introduced me to a lot of Black readers. I've never had a teacher that taught us a book from a Black author other than her. She used to give us these weekly journals. She didn't cross out anything that we wrote because that was our feelings. She then made her own passage, and she did nothing but uplift us or motivate us or support us. Did it start to turn something around in your, yeah, in your mind? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I was like... I'm good at this. The positive feedback that she was giving me, I was like, maybe the other teacher was wrong. Maybe I am a good writer. I started writing freely, without any hesitation, without holding back, without putting myself down. And it just got better and better. She loved it. She also saw our potential. She saw our strengths, our weaknesses, and even our weaknesses, she turned them and she made us feel like they were strengths. Instead of saying, oh no, English is your second language. But no, that's great, English is your second language. You would know a whole different language. A lot has happened since those journal exchanges. Asha's family moved back to Kenya. Asha and her older sister stayed in Columbus to work and go to college. She started her own family, worked as a healthcare aide, and took classes off and on. But things like car insurance and childcare got in the way. She became pregnant with her second child during the pandemic and told her mom she was quitting college. I was like, oh, I was like, mommy, I'm just, I'm gonna stop. I was like, I can't have morning sickness and go to school and get this one ready for school. And she was like, you're not stopping. You're not stopping again. You're gonna finish and I'm gonna be here for you every step of the way. The reason I've made it this far was my support system. Her mom came back to the United States to help care for Asha's kids. Asha is now 33 years old. She enrolled at Ohio State last year and because of the Weiler Scholarship, is on track to graduate in 2025. She wants to pursue a master's degree in educational administration, influencing policy for kids also trying to overcome. If you're wondering about how things worked out for Noah Trimble, several years ago, a young woman found him sitting on a park bench he had just dropped out of college, couldn't afford books, didn't have Wi-Fi. Nothing was going his way. The young woman asked, what was he doing? And I was like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm waiting for a ride. You know, and then I go somewhere else and I go to sleep there. Well, she finds me again and it's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to call a friend. They're going to let you stay with them for the night. She took him to a house of missionaries. They weren't home, but Noah slept in the basement and left before the couple returned. A year later, he's still living out of his car, and some friends invite him to a barbecue. It's like, okay, well, they drive me to the same house. 
It's the place you spent the it's night. It's the place in. I spent the night. <laughs> oh wow! And I, I meet the guy. Uh, his name's Mike Lampson. He's extraordinary. Became like my spiritual mentor. Again, that father figure, that mentor, that male strong figure in my life to say, "Dude, just you just got to do these things." He gave me a place to live, so I lived in their house. That's where I started to like getting my job, fixing any financial holes that I was in. He just got me back on my feet and. Yeah, we've always been close since then. Sure, Noah Tremble is resilient, but also the community came together for him. Like Asha, Noah is a non-traditional student. He's 31, is married to a teacher, has a baby son. His Weiler scholarship makes it possible for him to go to school without working long hours. And so he's set to graduate next spring. He will become a teacher of STEM education a steward of hopes and dreams, just like Mr. Metz. The College of Education and Human Ecology is extremely grateful to Bob Weiler and his family for establishing the Weiler Family Teacher Preparation Scholarship so that Noah, Asha, and their cohort of 10 teacher education students can realize their dream of becoming like the teachers who inspired them.